We hope you're enjoying the Mutual Audio Network. Stick around, there's much more to come. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. Listen, you are not yourself. I'll tell you how I know. Chatterbox Audio Theater presents The Separate Self, an original production written by Robert Arnold. No, you are not yourself, for inside every one of us lives another creature, a separate self, buried somewhere deep in the psyche, under layers of rules and customs and domestication. It waits, dormant, lulled to sleep by an increasingly undemanding world. I'm not talking about instinct here. I'm talking about something deeper, more fully formed, something powerful. As it happens, I'm at home that day. I've called in sick to work. This is just how it is, how it turns out. I've been feeling low all week, sluggish, generally off. Plus, I have an ache in my head that won't seem to go away. It's no simple matter to access this other self. In fact, most of us will go our entire lives without seeing it, without even knowing it's there. Some philosopher, Rousseau, I think, said that it's only in times of mortal peril that a person comes face to face with who he really is. On any other Tuesday, I would not still be at home. I'd be in the office, or worse, on the interstate, stuck in a mile-long line of cars. But it just so happens that on this particular day, I'm feeling sick. And so I'm able to be sitting there in the kitchen when Greg comes barging back in. It's at that moment, that critical, visceral moment, beyond which you'll either be stone dead or improbably, thrillingly alive. It's at that moment that the true self comes rushing up to the surface. He bursts into the room like a nightmare, disheveled and sweaty and wild. I'm at the table trying to choke down some breakfast, and it takes me a few seconds to even recognize who he is. To register that this man charging into the kitchen with me still in my pajamas, this man is in fact my husband. It's at that moment that the real you, elemental, essential, surges up from inside, comes busting out in a halo of adrenaline and fear. It's a sensation that is impossible to describe. It feels as though something foreign has overtaken your body, a demon, a possessing spirit. And yet, at the same time, you know, with a knowledge as deep as your bones, that this thing that has appeared from nowhere and taken control, this thing is very much you. It's more you than you've ever been. His eyes are wide, shining, and his clothes are wrinkled and dark with sweat. He comes charging across the kitchen, and he grabs me by the wrist, hard. So hard that I spill my coffee. So hard that later I will actually have bruises there in the shape of his fingers. His whole body is shaking. The true self awakens, summoned by the brain in that critical moment. I need you, the brain says, and the self rockets to the surface and takes control. He's breathing like he sprinted all the way from his office, which I'll find out later he did. And he kisses me. A desperate, sweaty kiss. A kind of kiss I haven't gotten or even thought about in years. What happens thereafter is indicative of the strength, the power, the worth of that hidden part of you. I can feel his heart pounding in his chest. Calm down, I tell him. First, just calm down. He's laughing, sobbing, shaking. He holds on to me for a long time. Of course, you may find that your true self is no better than the self you see every day. You may be surprised by its power, but unable to control it, to harness it, to to put it to any sort of use. I start to panic. Is something wrong, I ask him? Did something happen? You may. But on the other hand, you may do something amazing. And then I think, what an absurd question. Look at him. Of course something happened. I did something amazing.
What is it, I say? The sweetheart, what is it? What happened? I stopped a bus today. You what? It was carelessness, pure carelessness, the kind of stupid mistake that in our distracted and distracting world so often leads to tragedy. I'd gotten to work early that morning. I parked across the street, as I always do. The radio in the car is broken, has been for a long time, so I was humming to myself. I don't remember the tune. He should have died. This was what he was trying to tell me. At that very moment, he should not have been there with me, there in the kitchen, holding me damp with tears and sweat. He should have been dead. Dead. And what was I thinking of? It's hard now to remember, hard to pin it down so long after the fact. But I think I was thinking of baseball. In what could have been my last second, my final moment as a conscious, cognizant being, I was considering earn run averages, pennant races. It was a miracle, he would tell me later. Not that he wasn't dead, although that too seemed nothing short of a miracle. But even more so, it, it was a miracle because in a way he had died. In that split second, he had died and been instantly reborn. The point is, after a lifetime of careful crossing, of religiously looking one way and then the other, I stepped into the street without even thinking. It wasn't that the sun was in my eyes. It wasn't that my view was obscured. Nothing like that. It was mindlessness, plain and simple. After all these years, he said, all this wasted time, this was what was required. This was what it took. One mindless step, then another and another. And then all of a sudden I looked up, sensing something, perhaps a tremor, a, some delicate displacement of air, and saw the big, smiling front grill of a bus coming at me. The light was green, the driver distracted. He was on medication that made him drowsy, which is why he would eventually lose his license over the whole thing. Still, from what I understand, it, it didn't matter. Even perfectly awake, perfectly sober, even if he had been watching for Greg, anticipating him, he was much too close to have stopped in time. There was nothing he could do. There was nothing anybody could do. This, then, was what he told me, what he was trying to tell me. I looked him over, up and down. He seemed okay. He seemed unhurt. So this is what happened. What did he do? Nothing. I froze. I, I did nothing. And then the bus just stopped. It stopped? Just like that? Just like that. The official explanation was some sort of mechanical failure. The brakes seized up, it appeared, bringing the vehicle to a skidding, sparking halt, a mere two feet from my husband's face. Most of the passengers were thrown from their seats. For hours afterward, the intersection stank of scorched rubber. In defiance of the whole idea of cause and effect, in defiance of fate, in defiance, it would seem, of the universal laws of physics. But this was what happened. This was how it went. Mechanical failure, right then at exactly that moment. An amazing coincidence, to be sure, though perhaps not amazing enough, for it failed to explain why the bus could not be restarted. It shut down completely. Motor, brakes, electrical system, everything. How to understand it, then? How to make sense of it all? In that moment, everything stopped. There's only one explanation. As soon as I made sure he was okay, I insisted we return to the scene. Greg hadn't called the police. He hadn't waited for an ambulance. He hadn't even checked to see if everyone was okay. He'd simply turned and run, sprinting the three miles from the intersection to our house. We got back in time to watch them tow it away, this big dead thing with headlights like glazed over eyes. It looked so huge there in the street, so stiff and unwieldy. 
It reminded me of a picture I saw once in a magazine, the bloated, rotting carcass of a beached whale. The driver recognized him immediately. He knew that face, he said, was sure he'd have to remember it with sickening guilt for the rest of his life. It seemed they'd made eye contact through the windshield, Greg and the driver, two horrified witnesses to an event that had swept them along in its wake. And it was there, watching them take the thing away, that I understood. It was there that I finally found words for the realization blossoming inside of me. What must that have been like, I wonder, to be looking into a man's eyes at the exact moment his life changes? I just stood there, I told her. I froze, I did nothing. But it wasn't true. It wasn't that way at all. Could you identify it, do you think? Could you read it in the look on his face? What exactly would you see? Because I stopped the thing. I stopped that bus myself. Anyway, he wasn't hurt, and aside from a few bruises, neither was anyone else. The police were on the scene, and they told him he could go, because when you got right down to it, nothing had really happened, aside from a commuter bus breaking down in the middle of the street. I had felled the mighty beast. I had brought the giant to its knees. Of course, that wasn't all that had happened. Not by a long shot. Which explained, finally, the sensation I'd had, the feeling that had shot through me upon first seeing that bus. A sudden pulse, a, a burst of energy, a charge. Offhand, you might think it a symptom of fear, a sudden jolt of adrenaline. But I knew better. I took him back home and made him lie down, though, of course, he couldn't sleep. I tried to feed him, but he barely even looked at what I had made. Energy. Electricity from me, from inside, originating in and emanating from my body. Something from the very center of me, brought forth by danger, awakened, provoked. I was worried. Something was going on in that brain of his. It's never been hard to tell. It came from inside and exploded outward, radiating from me. And it was strong enough to shut down that bus. It wasn't until the next day that he leveled with me, that he explained to me his... Theory. In that moment, that millisecond, I called upon a power that I did not even know I possessed. Instinctually, subconsciously, I saved myself. Saved my own life. You can't be serious. It's the only thing that makes sense. <sighs> Where this came from, I suppose I'll never know. The mind seeks out patterns. It looks for order, for structure, even when the reality is coincidence, happenstance, chaos. Because soon thereafter, other things start to emerge, other events cutting like beacons through the fog of my memory. Strange and isolated happenings that appear to me now as part of a greater pattern, a series of dots that will connect to form an image. The mind takes these things and alters them, trims them, reshapes them into interlocking puzzle pieces. And then suddenly it seems so clear. Of course this is the way things are. At the age of two, I jammed a fork into a live wall socket. Instead of electrocuting me, the socket overloaded and a fuse blew, cutting the power to the room. But amazing things happen every day. At the age of 15, I got choked on a piece of candy that I accidentally swallowed. I turned blue and very nearly passed out. Just as my father was preparing to administer the Heimlich, the candy shattered into bits and went right down. Consider, for a moment, how many people there are in the world, how many different events. Then consider whether a few coincidences are really all that unlikely. In college, riding one night in the passenger seat of a friend's car, I watched two headlights swerve into our lane, a drunk driver. He was on course to smash headlong into us. 
There wasn't even time to scream. In truth, it would be more surprising if a certain amount of coincidences didn't occur. At the last second, though, his tire exploded and the car swerved, sailing off the road and into a tree. The other driver was paralyzed from the neck down. The two of us remained unhurt. Because, to a certain degree, it's probable that the improbable will happen. Do you see, then, the pattern? Do you see the larger picture beginning to emerge? This was what I told him. This is what I believe, and so this was what I told him. And anyway, I said, aside from all that, it just doesn't work. Do you see why the scales had at long last dropped from my eyes? At two years old, jamming a fork into a wall socket, you're not aware of any danger. You can't claim to have saved yourself, instinctively or otherwise, when you had no conception that what you were doing might result in harm. I tried to explain this to my wife the only person I thought might listen. Naturally, she didn't believe me. The other things, too. The choking, okay, maybe, but with the drunk driver, and even here today, you said you had zero time to think, to react. You didn't even know you were in danger until the danger had passed. But then who would believe me? It's nonsense, right? Utter nonsense. It's, it's completely unheard of. It couldn't be true. And even ignoring all that, I told him, even ignoring all that, I don't know what to make of this resurrection talk. You were dead, and now you're alive. What does that mean? How am I supposed to take that? And yet I know it. I feel it as, as deeply and thoroughly as one can feel a thing. Maybe more deeply and more thoroughly than I've ever felt anything before. You're telling me that the years we've spent together have been wasted? Dead? That in this whole stretch of time you've never even felt like you were conscious? We've become so closed off to the truly miraculous that we can't conceive of it anymore. We can't accept it. We can't see it, even when it's right in front of us. When you tell me something like that, how am I supposed to feel? And yet there it is. There you have it. Believe it or don't. For the next few days, he was a million miles away. I'd catch him in the kitchen or wandering outside, muttering to himself. Believe it or don't. There it is. He went to bed one evening without bothering to say goodnight. It felt like we were fighting without either of us knowing why. And then... Of course. And then I woke at 3 a.m. to find him gone. I can prove it to you. My heart stopped. I have to tell you... It was difficult even to breathe. I searched the house. I looked in the backyard, the basement, the street. Nothing. If you don't want to believe me, if you don't want to take it on faith... Finally, I looked in the garage. It should have been the first place I checked, but I was afraid of finding what I did, in fact, find. His car was gone. I've thought of a way to prove it to you. Oh, no. Please try to understand. There has been a change in me. Oh, God, no, please don't. Something inside of me has revealed itself. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be wished away. It must be engaged, studied, dissected. How could you do this to me? I have to give it credence. I have to understand. It can't mean that much to you. It means everything. The feeling that came over me then was one of utter helplessness. I had only the vaguest idea of what was in his head. There were a million places he might have gone. Because you see, in that moment, in that one moment, in the split second that I thought death was inevitable, I felt something. The world is full of dangers, especially for those foolish enough to seek them out. I felt something so blazing, so searing, that it cauterized everything that had come before. It turned me into something vital, tangible, 
real. For the life of me, I couldn't decide what to do. Should I call the police? Should I get in my car and go looking for him? Or, or should I get on the phone to our friends but stay there at home in case he came back? It exploded my mind in a way that made my life up to then seem silly and insignificant. It opened me up. It expanded me. The truth is, of course, there's no right answer. No matter what you do... You'll wish you had done something else. So to tell me that what I had felt, this thing I had experienced, was not real? But I was so distraught, so overwhelmed, that I didn't do anything. To tell me that is to take it away from me. And you can imagine what kind of damage such an excision would leave. What an absence it would create. Which, I suppose, is my own tragedy. My own secret shame. I curled up there on the couch and I hugged myself... And I just cried. If I'm right, then it must be proven. If I'm wrong... When faced with a moment that demanded my strength, my willpower, my action, I did nothing. Wrong. When I feel something this strongly, how could it possibly be wrong? It is a fact that hollows you out, that reduces you, which must be how Greg felt in his own crucial moment, his freeze-up, when he was saved from death by blind, stupid chance. But I won't concoct some fantasy to explain what went wrong. Put it this way. If I were wrong, I could never recover, could never be rebuilt. I would just as soon die as find out I was wrong. I won't. The shame is mine, and I will live with it. I will carry it with me for the rest of my days. Because if I don't have this, I have nothing. There's this joke a friend told me once. I don't remember the wording, but I, I remember the substance. Three statues are set up in a museum. In the coming years, there will be wars. There will be sacrifices. There will be riots and rebellions. There will be a farmer who kills an intruder with his son's baseball bat. A mother who lifts a two-ton car to save her baby. A trapped hiker who cuts off his own arm with a pocket knife. One of the statues has no hands, the other hasn't any legs, and the third is only a torso. There will be those who look into the void and rise up to it, face it, knowing exactly what they have to do. The first statue turns to the second and says, I envy that guy. Let it never be said that I did not rise up, that I did not stand with my face to the void. Him, says the second statue. He doesn't have any arms or legs. He doesn't even have a face. He's more helpless than we are. Never let it be said that I could not do what I needed to do. Sure, says the first statue, but he doesn't know that. Which is, I suppose, why I'm telling you all this. I don't expect you to pity me or to sympathize. I don't expect you to understand, but I do want you to know what it means. It's not all that funny, I guess, but for some reason I remember it. In fact, lately I can't seem to get it out of my head. Annie. Annie, sweetheart, I'm sorry. I love you. I don't want to think of it, but I do. I can't help myself. I can't make it stop. I love you. And I'm sorry, but I have to know. I want so badly to make it stop. been listening to Chatterbox Audio Theater's production of The Separate Self, featuring Robert Arnold as Greg, 
and Lauren Rachel as Anne. Music by Matthew Cruz. Produced by James Antoine. Written and directed by Robert Arnold. This is your announcer, Tom Badgett. Chatterbox Audio Theater is a nonprofit, web-based community theater that advances the exchange of ideas by channeling creativity and artistic collaboration into recorded audio works that enlighten, entertain, and inspire. Download all of our shows free at www.chatterboxtheater.org. Thank you for listening to Monday Matinee right here on the Mutual Audio Network. Please consider subscribing to other days of the Mutual Feeds, including Tuesday Terrors for Horror, Wednesday Wonders, our science fiction and fantasy magazine, Thursday Thrillers for Action, Adventure, Mystery, and Crime Drama, Friday Follies, our end-of-the-week comedy series, Saturday Story Circle for kids and families alike, and Sunday Showcase, bringing you the very newest in audio releases for the week from our United Artists of Audio, right here on the Mutual Audio Network. This is the Mutual Audio Network, listening and imagining together.